0: chapter forty of bleak house by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter forty national and domestic england has been in a dreadful state for some weeks lord coodle would not go out sir thomas doodle wouldn't come in and there being nobody in great britain to speak of except coodle and doodle there's been no government it is a mercy that the hostile meeting between those two great men, which at one time seemed inevitable, did not come off, because if both pistols had taken effect, and Coodle and Doodle had killed each other, it is to be presumed that England must have waited to be governed until young Coodle and young Doodle, now in frocks and long stockings, were grown up. This stupendous national calamity, however, was averted by— Lord Coodle's making the timely discovery that if, in the heat of debate, he had said that he scorned and despised the whole ignoble career of Sir Thomas Doodle, he had merely meant to say that party differences should never induce him to withhold it from the tribute of his warmest admiration. While it has opportunely turned out, on the other hand, that Sir Thomas Doodle had, in his own bosom, expressly booked Lord Coodle go down into posterity as the mirror of virtue and honor. Still, England has been some weeks in the dismal strait of having no pilot, as was well observed by Sir Leicester Dedlock, to weather the storm, and the marvellous part of the matter is that England has not appeared to care very much about it, but has gone on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, as the old world did in the days before the flood. But Coodle knew the danger, and Doodle knew the danger, and all their followers and hangers-on had the clearest possible perception of the danger. At last Sir Thomas Doodle has not only condescended to come in, but has done it handsomely, bringing in with him all his nephews, all his male cousins, and all his brothers-in-law, so there is hope for the old ship yet. Doodle has found that he must throw himself upon the country, chiefly in the form of sovereigns and beer. In this metamorphosed state, he is available in a good many places simultaneously, and can throw himself upon a considerable portion of the country at one time. Britannia being much occupied in pocketing Doodle in the form of sovereigns, and swallowing Doodle in the form of beer, and in swearing herself black in the face that she does neither, plainly to the advancement of her glory and morality. The London season comes to a sudden end. Through all the Doodleites and Koodalites dispersing to assist Britannia, in those religious exercises hence mrs rouncewell housekeeper at chesney wold foresees though no instructions have yet come down that the family may shortly be expected together with a pretty large accession of cousins and others who can in any way assist the great constitutional work and hence the stately old dame taking time by the forelock leads him up and down the staircases and along the galleries the passages, and through the rooms, to witness before he grows any older, that everything is ready, that the floors are rubbed bright, carpet spread, curtains shaken out, and beds puffed and pattered, still room and kitchen cleared for action, all things prepared, as beseems the deadlock dignity. This present summer evening, as the sun goes down, the preparations are complete. Dreary and solemn the old house looks, with so many appliances of habitation, and with no inhabitants, except the pictured forms upon the walls. So did these come and go. A deadlock in possession might have ruminated passing along. So did they see the gallery hushed and quiet, as I see it now. So thinkers think of the gap that they would make in this domain when they were gone. So find it, as I find it, difficult to believe that it could be without them. So pass from my world, I pass from theirs now closing the reverberating door, so leave no blank to miss them, and so die. Through some of the fiery windows, beautiful from without, and set at this sunset hour, not in the dull grey stone, but in a glorious house of gold, the light excluded at other windows pours in rich lavish, overflowing like the summer plenty in the land. Then do the frozen deadlocks thaw. Strange movements come upon their features as a shadow of leaves play there, a dense justice in a corner is beguiled into a wink a staring baronet with a truncheon gets a dimple in his chin down into the bosom of a stony shepherdess there stills a fleck of light and warmth that would have done it good a hundred years ago one ancestress of volumnia in high-heeled shoes very like her casting the shadow of that virgin event before her two full centuries shoots out into a halo and becomes a saint a maid of honour of the court of Charles the Second, with large round eyes, and other charms to correspond, seems to bathe in glowing water, and it ripples as it glows. But the fire of the sun is dying. Even now the floor is dusky, and shadow slowly mounts the walls, bringing the deadlocks down like age and death. And now upon my lady's picture over the great chimney-piece, a weird shade falls from some old tree that turns it pale, and flutters it, and looks as if a great arm held a veil or hood, watching an opportunity to draw it over her. Higher and darker rises shadow on the wall, now a red gloom in the ceiling, now the fire is out. All that prospect, from the terrace, looks so near, has moved solemnly away and changed not the first nor the last of beautiful things that look so near, and will so change, into a distant phantom. Light mists arise, and the dew falls, and the sweet scents of the garden are heavy in the air. Now the woods settle into great masses, as if they were each one profound tree, and now the moon rises to separate them, and to glimmer here and there, in horizontal lines behind their stems. But to make the avenue of a pavement of light Among the high cathedral arches Fantastically broken Now the moon is high And the great house needing habitation more than ever Is like a body without life Now it is even awful Stealing through it To think of the live people Who have slept in the solitary bedrooms To say nothing of the dead Now is the time for shadow When every corner is a cavern and every downward step a pit where the stained glass is reflected in pale and faded hues upon the floors when anything and everything can be made of the heavy staircase beams excepting their own proper shapes when the armour has dull lights upon it not easily to be distinguished from stealthy movement and when barred helmets are frightfully suggestive of heads and sides and of all the shadows in chesney wold the shadow in the long drawing-room upon my lady's pitcher is the first to come the last to be disturbed at this hour and by this light it changes into threatening hands raised up and menacing the handsome face with every breath that stirs she is not well ma'am says a groom in mrs rouncewell's audience-chamber my lady not well what's the matter why, my lady has been but poorly, ma'am, since she was last here. I don't mean with family, ma'am, but when she was here as a bird of passage, like. My lady has not been out much for her, and has kept her room a good deal. Chesney Wold, Thomas, rejoins the housekeeper with proud complacency. will set my lady up. There's no finer air, and no healthier soil in the world. Thomas may have his own personal opinions on this subject, probably hints them in his manner of smoothing his sleek head and the nape of his neck to his temples but he forbears to express them further and retires to the servants hall to regale on cold meat pie and ale the groom is the pilot-fish before the noblest shark next evening down come sir leicester and my lady with their largest retinue and down come the cousins and others from all the points of the compass thenceforth for some weeks backward and forward rush mysterious men with no names who fly about all those particular parts of the country on which Doodle is at present throwing himself in an orferous and malty shower. But who are merely persons of a restless disposition, and never do anything anywhere? On these national occasions, Celeste finds the cousins useful. A better man than Honourable Bob Stables to meet the hunt at dinner there could not possibly be. Better got-up gentlemen than the other cousins to ride over to polling booths and hustings, here and there and show themselves on the side of England. It would be hard to find. Volumnia is a little dim, but she is of the true descent, and there are many who appreciate her sprightly conversation, her French conundrums, so old as to become in the cycles of time almost new again, the honour of taking the fair deadlock into dinner, or even the privilege of her hand in the dance. On these national occasions, dancing may be a patriotic service, and Bologna is constantly seen hopping about for the good of an ungrateful and unpensioning country. My lady takes no great pains to entertain the numerous guests, and being still unwell rarely appears until late in the day. But at all the dismal dinners, leaden lunches, basilisk balls, and other melancholy pageants, her mere appearance is a relief as to Leicester, he conceives it utterly impossible that anything can be wanting in any direction for any one who has the good fortune to be received under that roof and in a state of sublime satisfaction he moves amongst the company a magnificent refrigerator daily the cousins trot through the dust and canter over roadside turf away to hustings and polling booths with leather gloves and hunting-whips for the counties and kid gloves and riding-canes for the burrows and daily bring back reports on which sir leicester holds forth after dinner daily the restless men who have no occupation in life present the appearance of being rather busy daily volumnia has a little cousinly talk with sir leicester on the state of the nation from which sir leicester is disposed to conclude that volumnia is more reflecting woman than he had thought her "'How are we getting on?' says Miss Volumnia, clasping her hands. "'Are we safe?' "'The mighty business is nearly over by this time, "'and Doodle will throw himself off the country in a few days more.' "'Sir Leicester has just appeared in the long drawing-room after dinner, "'a bright particular star surrounded by clouds of his cousins. "'Volumnia,' replies Sir Leicester, who has a list in his hand, "'we are doing tolerably.' "'Only tolerably?' Although it is summer weather, Sir Leicester always has his own particular fire in the evening. He takes his usual screen seat near it, and repeats with much firmness and a little displeasure, as who should say, I am not a common man. And when I say tolerably, it must not be understood as a common expression. Volumnia, we are doing tolerably. Well, at least there is no opposition to you, Volumnia asserts, with confidence. No, Volumnia, this distracted country has lost its senses in many respects. I grieve to say, but, it is not so mad as that, I am glad to hear it. Bologna's, finishing the sentence, restores it a favour. Sir Leicester, with a gracious inclination of his head, seems to say to himself, a sensible woman, this, on the whole, although occasionally precipitate. In fact, as to this question of opposition, the fair Dedlock's observation was superfluous. Sir Leicester, on these occasions always delivering in his own candidateship, as a kind of handsome wholesale order to be promptly executed, two other little seats that belong to him, he treats as a retail orders of less importance, merely sending down the men, signifying to the tradespeople, "You will have the goodness to make these materials to, to two members of Parliament and send them home when done." I regret to say, Volumnia, that in many places the people have shown a bad spirit, and that this opposition to the government has been of a most determined and most. Implacable description, wretches! says Volumnia. Even proceeds Sir Leicester, glancing at the circumjacent cousins on sofas and ottomans, even in many, in fact, in most of those places in which the government has carried it against a faction. Note by the way that the Coodleites are always a faction with the Doodleites. And that the doodalites occupy exactly the same position towards the koodalites. Even in them I am shocked, for the credit of Englishmen, to be constrained to inform you that the party has not triumphed without being put into an enormous expense. Hundreds, says Leicester, eyeing the cousins with increasing dignity, and swelling in indignation. Hundreds of thousands of pounds. If Volumnia have a fault, it is the fault of being a trifle too innocent. Seeing that the innocence which would go extremely well with a sash and tucker is a little out of keeping with a rouge and pearl necklace, however, impelled by innocence, she asks, What for? Volumnia remonstrates Sir Leicester with his utmost severity. Volumnia, no, no, I don't mean what for, cries Volumnia with her favourite little scream. How stupid I am. I mean, What a pity! I am glad, replies Sir Leicester, that you do mean what a pity. Volumnia well, hastens to express her opinion that the shocking people ought to be tried as traitors and made to support the party. I'm glad, Volumnia, repeats Sir Lester, unmindful of these mollifying statements, that you do mean what a pity. It is disgraceful to the electors. But if you, though inadvertently and without intending so unreasonable a question, ask me what for, let me reply to you, for necessary expenses, and i trust to your good sense volumnia not to pursue the subject here or elsewhere sir so leicester feels it incumbent on him to observe a crushing aspect towards volumnia because it is whispered abroad that these necessary expenses will in some two hundred election petitions be unpleasantly connected with the word bribery and because some graceless jokers have consequently suggested the omission from the church service of the ordinary supplication in behalf of the high court of parliament and have recommended instead that the prayers of the congregation be requested for six hundred and fifty-eight gentlemen in a very unhealthy state i suppose observes alumnia having taken a little time to recover her spirits after a late castigation i suppose mr tulkinghorn has been worked to death i don't know says sir leicester opening his eyes why mr tulkinghorn should be worked to death i don't know what mr tulkinghorn's engagements may be he is not a candidate volumnia had thought he might have been employed sir leicester could desire to know by whom and for what volumnia abashed again suggest by somebody to advise and make arrangements sir leicester is not aware that any client of mr tulkinghorn has been in need of his assistance lady dedlock seated in an open window with her arm upon its cushioned ledge and looking out at the evening shadows falling on the park has seemed to attend since the lawyer's name was mentioned a languid cousin with a moustache in a state of extreme debility now observes from his couch that a man told him yesterday that tulkinghorn had gone down to that iron place to give a legal opinion about something the contest being over to-day it would be highly jolly if tulkinghorn should peer with the news that Coodle Man was floored. Mercury, in attendance with coffee, informs Celeste hereupon that Mr. Tulkinghorn has arrived and is taking dinner. My lady turns her head inward for a moment, and then looks out again as before. Bologna is charmed to hear that her delight is come. He is so original, such a stolid creature with an immense being, for knowing all sorts of things, and never telling them. Lomnia is persuaded that he must be a Freemason, is sure that he is at the head of a lodge and wears short aprons and is made a perfect idol, and is made a perfect idol of with candlesticks and trowels. These lively remarks the fair deadlock delivers in her youthful manner while making a purse. He has not been here once, she adds since I came. I really had some thoughts of breaking my heart for the inconstant creature. I had almost made up my mind that he was dead. It may be the gathering gloom of evening, or it may be the darker room within herself, but a shade is on my lady's face as if she thought I oh, would he were Mr. Tulkinghorn says Sir Leicester is always welcome here and always discreet, wheresoever he is, a very valuable person, and deservedly respected. The debilitated cousin supposes he is enormously rich feller. He has a stake in the country, says Sir Leicester, I have no doubt. He is, of course, handsomely paid, and he associates, almost on a footing of equality, with the highest society. Everybody starts, for a gun is fired close by. Good gracious, what's that? cries Volumnia, with a little withered scream. A rat, says my lady, and they have shot him. Enter Mr. Tulkinghorn, followed by Mercury's with lamps and candles no no says sir leicester i think not my lady do you object to the twilight on the contrary my lady prefers it volumnia oh nothing is so delicious to volumnia as to sit and talk in the dark then take them away says sir leicester tulkinghorn i beg your pardon how do you do mr tulkinghorn with his usual leisurely ease advances renders his passing homage to my lady shakes sir leicester's hand and subsides into the chair proper to him when he has anything to communicate on the opposite side of the baronet's little newspaper table, Sir Leicester is apprehensive that my lady, not being very well, will take cold at the open window. My lady is obliged to him, but would rather sit there for the air. Sir Leicester rises, adjusts her scarf about her, and returns to his seat. Mr. Tulkinghall, in the meanwhile takes a pinch of snuff. Now, say Sir Leicester, how has that contest gone? Hollow from the beginning, not a chance. They have brought in both their people. You are beaten out of all reason, three to one. It is a part of Mr. Tulkinghorn's policy and mastery to have no political opinions, indeed no opinions. Therefore he says you are beaten, and not we. Sir Leicester is majestically wroth. Volumnia never heard of such a thing. The debilitated cousin holds that it's the sort of thing that's sure to tap in Slong's votes given mob. It's the place, you know, Mr. Tulkinghorn goes on to say, in the fast-increasing darkness when there is silence again, where they wanted to put up Mrs. Rouncewell's son. A proposal which, as you correctly informed me at the time, he had the becoming taste and perception, observed Sir Leicester, to decline. I cannot say that i by any means approve of the sentiments expressed by mr rouncewell when he was here for some half-hour in this room but there was a sense of propriety in his decision which i am glad to acknowledge ha says mr tulkinghorn it did not prevent him from being very active in this election though sir so leicester is distinctly heard to gasp before speaking did i understand you did you say that mr rouncewell has been very active in this election uncommonly active against Oh dear, yes, against you. He is a very good speaker, plain and emphatic. He made a damaging effect and has great influence in the business part of the proceedings. He carried all before him. It is evident to the whole company, though nobody can see him, that Sir Leicester is staring majestically. And he was much assisted, says Mr. Tulkinghorn as a wind-up, by his son. By his son, sir? repeats Sir Leicester with awful politeness. By his son the son who wished to marry the young woman in my lady's service that son he has but one then upon my honour says sir Leicester, after a terrific pause during which he has been heard to snort and felt to stare then upon my honour upon my life and upon my reputation and principles the floodgates of society have burst open and the waters have uh, obliterated the landmarks of the framework of the cohesion by which things are held together general burst of cousinly indignation volumnia thinks it's really high time you know for somebody in power to step in and do something strong debilitated cousin thinks country's going to the devil steeplechase pace i beg says sir leicester in breathless condition that we may not comment further on this circumstance comment is superfluous my lady let me suggest in reference to that young woman i have no intention observes my lady from a window in a low but decided tone. Of parting with her. That was not my meaning, returned Leicester. I am glad to hear you say so. I would suggest that as you think her worthy of your patronage, you should exert your influence to keep her from these dangerous hands. You might show her what violence would be done in such association to her duties and principles, and you might preserve her for a better fate. You might point out to her that she probably would, in good time, find a husband at Chesney Wall, by whom she would not be, Sir adds after a moment's consideration, dragged from the altars of her forefathers. These remarks he offers with his unvarying politeness and deference, when he addresses himself to his wife. She merely moves her head in reply. The moon is rising, and where she sits there is a little stream of cold, pale light in which her head is seen. It is a worthy of remark, says Mr. Tulkinghorn. however, that these people are in their way very proud. Proud? Sir so Leicester doubts his hearing. I should not be surprised if they are all voluntarily abandon the girl, yes, lover and all, instead of her abandoning them. Suppose she remained at Chesney Wold under such circumstances. Well, says Sir Leicester tremulously, well you should know, Mr. Tulkinghorn, you have been among them. Really, Sir Leicester returns the lawyer. I state the fact why I could tell you a story with Lady Deglot's permission. Her head concedes it, and Volumnia is enchanted. Oh, a story he's going to tell something at last. A ghost in it, Volumnia hopes no real flesh and blood, Mr. Tulkinghorn stops for an instant and repeats with some little emphasis grafted upon his usual monotony, real flesh and blood, Miss Dedlock. Sir so Leicester, these particulars have only lately become known to me. They are very brief. They exemplify what I have said. I suppress the names for the present. Lady Dedlock will not think me ill-bred, I hope. By the light of the fire which is low, he can be seen looking towards the moonlight. By the light of the moon, Lady Dedlock can be seen perfectly still. A townsman of this Mrs. Roundswell, a man in exactly parallel circumstances as i am told had the good fortune to have a daughter who attracted the notice of a great lady i speak of really a great lady not merely great to him but married to a gentleman of your condition sir leicester sir leicester condescendingly says yes mr tulkinghorn implying that then she must have appeared of very considerable moral dimensions indeed in the eyes of the ironmaster the lady was wealthy and beautiful, and she had a liking for the girl, and treated her with great kindness, and kept her always near her. Now this lady preserved a secret under all her greatness, which she had preserved for many years. In fact, she had in early life been engaged to marry a young rake. He was a captain in the army, nothing connected with who came to any good. She never did marry him, but she gave birth to a child of which he was the father. By the light of the fire, he could be seen looking towards the moonlight by the moonlight lady Dedlock can be seen in profile perfectly still the captain in the army being dead she believed herself safe but a train of circumstances with which i need not trouble you led to discovery as i received the story they began an imprudence on her own part one day when she was taken by surprise which shows how difficult it is for the firmest of us she was very firm to be always guarded there was a great domestic trouble and amazement, you may suppose. I leave you to imagine, Sir Leicester, the husband's grief. But that is not the present point. When Mr. Rouncewell's townsman heard of the disclosure, he no more allowed the girl to be patronised and honoured than he would have suffered her to be trodden underfoot before his eyes. Such was his pride that he indignantly took her away. As if from reproach and disgrace, he had no sense of the honour done to him, and his daughter by the lady's condescension not the least he resented the girl's position as if the lady had been the commonest of commoners that is the story i hope lady dedlock will excuse its painful nature there are various opinions on the merits more or less conflicting with volumnias that fair young creature cannot believe there ever was such a lady and rejects the whole history on the threshold the majority incline to the debilitated cousin's sentiment which is in a few words no business rouncewell's infernal townsman sir so leicester generally refers back in his mind to Wat tyler and arranges a sequence of events on a plan of his own there is not much conversation in all for late hours have been kept at chesney wold since the necessary expenses elsewhere began and this is the first night in many on which the family have been alone it is ten past ten when sir leicester begs mr tulkinghorn to ring for candles then the stream of moonlight has swelled into a lake and then lady dedlock for the first time moves and rises and comes forward to a table for a glass of water winking cousins bat-like in the candle glare crowd round to give it olomnia always ready for something better if procurable takes another very mild sip of which contents her Lady Dedlock, graceful, self-possessed, looked after by admiring eyes, passes away slowly down the long perspective by the side of that nymph, not at all improving her as a question of contrast. End of chapter 40.